Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, and chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? <clears throat> that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. <clears throat> the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. <clears throat> so good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me introduce myself. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see all of you this morning on this uh, beautiful day, Time Change Sunday. And so uh, if you look a little cob cobwebbed-eyed, uh, I would understand. Everybody's a little tired. Uh, it's good to see you. We are continuing to plot our way through uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. It's quite, it's quite an ordeal. It's been quite an ordeal for us. We will probably continue to do so for the better part of the year. We'll take a little break in the summer. Uh, but we've come to a really, uh, really difficult section of the letter, uh, chapter 6 and 7, uh, which most commentators and people who know a lot about the Bible say is one of the most difficult to understand sections of the entire Bible. And uh, I think largely that is because <clears throat> when we read it, we have a hard time making sense of it because we... we often fail to grasp the scope of the work uh, that God intends to do in our lives. George MacDonald, the 19th century Scottish minister and farmer, 
he had an analogy that I think is really helpful. C.S. Lewis picked it up in Mere Christianity, but it's really, it's really attributed to McDonald. He said, you know, uh, our problem is that we think uh, that God comes into our life uh, for a minor re- renovation project. So something like new kitchen cabinets, okay? Would you just come in and kind of rearrange the furniture? I need a little spruce up or something like that. And then he shows up with a sledgehammer and saws and, you know, all of these things. And he begins to tear down walls and put in extra wings and raise towers and put in courtyards. And here are his words. He said, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And it's a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. And I think perhaps that's why. Romans 6 and 7 uh, is difficult for us to comprehend and make sense of as it is because it's a demo job. I mean, we're in the middle of a demo job here. Paul is, is stripping us down to the studs and the wiring to get inside and really ask what's going on in the inner parts of our, of our lives. So we've said being united with Christ, which is the theme of this section, you remember beginning all the way back in chapter 5, verse 10, but really, it really starts to come out in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life and so forth. Being united to Christ means that Jesus has done a work for you that becomes a work he does in you. Remember we said that last week? He does a work for you that is so powerful that it really also becomes a work that he does in you. It is a work that he does in you that secures your obedience which is what Paul's been laboring to talk about. He's answering critics who believed that grace actually would encourage sin. Uh, they said, you know, we're, we're concerned about this doctrine of grace you've been giving us, Paul, because it seems like grace would encourage sin, and the law is what encourages obedience, and you're doing away with the law, and so you're taking away the very thing that leads to obedience. And Paul's saying, no, no, you've got it all backwards. It's actually the law. Get this. You ready? This is you got to like take a breath here with me for a minute. But Paul is saying, no, it's actually the law that, that encourages disobedience. And it's grace that makes a person obedient from the heart. So we have to go a little step further than we're normally, you know, used to going. We, we need to ask a question beyond just the question, do you obey? It's an important question. Is obedience really, you know, a part of your life? It's a great helpful, important question, but it's only part of the question because really the gospel question that you have to ask yourself is not just do you obey, but why do you obey? What's your motivation? What's, what's compelling you? What's the source uh, of your life? And if it's a life of obedience, what's the source of that life of obedience? And so our doctrine this morning, if I could put it to you that way, as the Puritans of old did, I kind of like this, or a summary if you would, uh, our doctrine is this, that law, as Paul tells us, law actually encourages disobedience And grace encourages obedience and not the other way around. So then we have to ask a question. Well, well, then what about the law? I mean, is there then, okay, if you're you're feeling a little unsettled and a little nervous, I am too. That's good. Doesn't this open us up to just any, what you know, no holds barred, anything goes? What about the law? And that is, that's actually the the theme of of this section. Paul says the law actually does have an important part to play, but it's crucial that you understand what the role is. And so we gotta get these things right before we move on and keep going in the, in, the, in the letter. So here are the three things that we want to talk about in regards to the law this morning. You'll see them in the outline uh, that I gave you. We first want to talk about how sin uses the law to enslave. So the law is actually a, a weapon or an instrument in the hands of sin to enslave us further in, under sin's dominion. 
Secondly, we want to talk about how God comes and he uses the law to a very different purpose. Sin uses the law to enslave us. God uses the law to actually save us. And then once he's done that, the third thing we have to ask him then is uh, how do we use the law to serve him? So sin uses the law to enslave. God uses the law to save. And then that frees us to use the law to obey. We want to look at all three of those things. Okay, so if you look in the text with me this morning... Let's begin by uh, looking at that first point. How then does sin use the law to enslave us? The power of sin is the law, Paul says in Corinthians. Uh, So you look in verse 14 and you see Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The implication of that verse being that sin exercises its dominion by keeping you under the law. It's actually where the power of sin comes from. If we could break out from this, whatever Paul means by being under the law, we would break the power of sin. So then, what does it mean to be under the law? That's the question we have to ask and answer. And to be under the law, according to Paul, according to the, you know, the scriptures, is that, you're, that you, you've accepted the obligations of the law uh, and you've come under its consequences and its curse. You've said, I know I've got to obey this in order to be right with God, and you know, the law says if you don't do it, then all of these things, and I'm taking on the obligation of all of that. I'm taking it on myself. Now, let's go back to the word righteousness again, because we've been using that word, and that's really the theme of this entire book. Being under law means living as if righteousness comes through obeying the law, as if the way to rightness with God is through your obedience to God's commands. If you want an analogy... Uh, to be under law, to be seeking for righteousness in the law, means that you're in the courtroom every day, right? There's a, it's like the court is in session. Every day there's evidence being presented, and everything, every word, everything you say, everything that other people, everything is being presented as either evidence for the prosecution or for the defense. And then at the end of the day, the verdict is handed down, uh, and that's just the way it is. That's what it means to be under law, this sense of just being constantly on trial. And what we're told here is that that's where sin's power comes from. That the law is not the solution to sin. That's Paul's whole point. If you're under law, the law doesn't help you against sin. It's helping sin against you. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, don't think for a minute that Christianity means you, quote unquote, get religion, right? You, 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 you wake up and, you know, I got to make, I gotta make you know, religion a part of my life. And you turn over a new leaf. You decide you're going to be, try to be as good as you, as you can be. Listen, that's, that's not Christianity. It's actually moving farther away from Christianity. If you do that, you're going under law. And the whole point of Christianity is to get you out from under law, right, and into grace. So if you're a Christian, then, be careful of allowing yourself to be drawn back into the courtroom, Jesus has worked to bring you out. Don't let yourself get pulled back in there. That's what Paul warns about in many places in his letters. Don't start out with grace and then turn back, right, to works of the law, to trying to do all, you know, pushing yourself forward in your own strength. Don't don't do that. The law is not the solution to sin. It's an instrument of sin. Look at verse 5 in chapter 7 and then then, uh, verses 8 and 9 there too. Paul says, while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law. Do you see that? We're at work. And then in his personal testimony that begins in verse 7, he says, But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin died. What's, what's all that mean? It means that the law doesn't do away with sin. It actually encourages 
more sin. It seizes, right? The, uh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, seizing an opportunity, sin through the commandment did this. Okay, it means it, means, uh, it doesn't do away. It actually encourages more sin. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, when I was in um, eighth grade, my class took a trip to Washington, D.C. Like no parents, that kind of trip, okay? Just a few chaperones that had no idea what was going on in the back of the bus or in the hotel room at night. I can't, I just can't even fathom. No way I would let my kids do that, but I'm a better parent than my parents were, I guess. <laughs> we, uh, my dad's in the second row, so that was kind of a sling. I remember on the trip we went to the National Cathedral, uh, and as a bunch of eighth grade boys, you know, are want to do, somehow we, it's so funny, I wish Jim, is Jim, Jim's not here, is he? One of my friends is on that trip, he's in the church, but um, we heard somehow that there were secret passageways and dungeons in like in the building in the National Cathedral, so we were really excited about this part of the trip, everything else was pretty boring, but we were going to go have an adventure. So we walked in with the class to do the tour, and immediately, of course, you walk in, and you look over, and there's some, like, vague stairwell either going down, and it says, you know, do, don't go past this point. And, of course, we thought, that's it. That's the secret passageway to the really fun stuff. And so what did we do? We, I don't remember how. Somehow we avoided the chaperones. We hopped the chains, and we went running in the kind of the back rooms of the National Cathedral upstairs. And, and I was a rule follower. Okay, you got to understand, I was a rule follower. So um, I just remember, I remember feeling really scared, and I remember feeling really guilty, and I remember feeling really excited. And uh, eventually, we came out the door in the balcony, like I'm talking, I mean, if you've ever been in the building, like over the altar, I mean, looking down, and there is our poor, you know, pitiful class down in the main part of the building taking the tour. And of course, we come out, and they see us, and like, ah, get, you know, get down here, what are you doing? We got into so much trouble. And I can't believe they didn't send us home. Um, but it's, it's, a great, it's a great analogy. It's a great illustration of exactly what Paul is saying here. He said, sin seizes the opportunity by the commandment. It's, I wouldn't have thought to go running off into the, the bones of the cathedral until I saw the rule that said, don't go past this point. I thought, mm, that must be where the fun stuff is. Sin uses the law to enslave us by actually producing an opportunity for sin. I mean, you know how this works, right? Parents of little children, tell a child, don't touch that. What's the first thing? They weren't even thinking about it. It wasn't even on their radar. And then you said, don't touch that. They said, oh, that's the fun toy. I need that one. She told me I couldn't have it, and therefore I want it more than anything else. And that's exactly what Paul's saying, okay? There's something really wrong with us. And the law can't touch it. It can't heal it. It actually makes it worse. And still, we keep turning back to the law. There is a gravitational pull towards what Paul call, in, in what Paul calls the flesh, the part of us that, that is opposed to the idea of grace towards law. We keep trying to fix sin with rules and willpower. And it takes all the power out of Christianity. That's the irony. If you try to fix sin with rules and willpower, it takes the power out of your Christianity. It takes all the power out, and it's out of place. And this really comes out in the analogy that Paul uses here. It's, it's kind of vague, to be honest, in, in verses 1 through 3 of marriage. And here's the sum of his argument. He says, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're married to Christ. 
So it's an image of union with Christ again. You were, he says you were once, by implication, you were married to the law, you were bound to the law, but now he says the law's dead. And then he goes on to say, well, you're dead. Either way, you know, he says the obligation uh, that you once had to the law is no longer there. You're no longer obligated to the law, but to Christ. It's a really difficult analogy. We were in our preaching meeting this week, and we think, we think Paul, Paul got confused. Listen, if Paul got confused writing it, we have no chance to not get confused trying to make sense of it. But, here, but here's the point he's saying. He's saying you died, the law died, somebody died, and now there's no longer any obligation to this former relationship because of this, this new thing that's happened, this new union in marriage with Christ. Now remember, the question of the text is really, uh, what is your motivation for obeying God? Do you obey because you're under law, or do you obey because you're under grace, because grace has come? And the point of the analogy is, is that if you're in Christ, if you're under grace, not law, you don't have any allegiance to the law anymore. That's verse 3. You see that? You belong to Jesus. And if you go back under the law, if you allow yourself to be dragged back into works righteousness, not only are you moving, listen, not only are you moving deeper into the reign of sin, but you're also committing spiritual adultery. If you allow yourself to feel the way you did, if you're a, a person of faith, when, you're, when you were married to the law, you are being disloyal to your second husband. It doesn't matter what your feelings are. It doesn't matter what's true of you in practice. Paul's going to say, we're almost there, right? We're almost to Romans 8.1. He's going to say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the amen moment. You missed it. Right? There is, I mean, we've been in this. That should come like a breath of fresh air to you for as long as we've been in Romans. There is no condemnation. That's what being in Christ is like. And so if you allow the law to make you feel condemned and afraid and constantly be evaluating yourself and, 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 and you know, kind of navel-gazing, then you're being unfaithful to the one who has died and been raised from the dead to do away with condemnation and fear. That's what he says. Sin exercises its power by using the law to make you feel condemned. But if you're in Christ then you're no longer under the law. Verse 4, look there. You've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Such an important verse. You ought to underline that one, come back to it. We are no longer under the law as a covenant of works. We are no longer in a position of trying to save ourselves. Righteousness comes from faith, not law-keeping. That's the lesson we've learned. It's not based on your performance, but on the work of another for you. We're under grace, right? Grace is not a doctrine, remember? It's not just a doctrine. It's a realm. It's a kingdom. We've died to the law. We've come under grace. We've died to the law because in our assurance of pardon, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That means fully human, just like you and I. Born under the law, which means with the obligation to fulfill the law in the same way that we have that obligation. But he was born under the law to redeem those under the law by actually obeying the law perfectly to give us a righteousness that can be ours so that we can be redeemed. In Jesus, God became like us to obey for us, to free us so that we could be under grace, not under the law. Let me say it again. In Jesus, God became like us in order to obey for us, to set us free so that we could be under grace, not under the law. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so if you're in Christ, here's a couple of things, just some, some applications before we move on. If you're in Christ, then you're out of the courtroom. 
Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of my favorite uh, commentators and pastors, he says this. He says, it doesn't matter how deeply or how violently you may sin as a believer, you should never again come back under condemnation. If you do, you have put yourself back under law again. Whatever you do or whatever you fail to do, you must never again give place to that sense of condemnation. Now, he, he, he likes to stretch things, okay? So he goes on to say this. Let me, let me, this is, this is stretching a little bit. He goes on in that same passage in one of his sermons. He says, I go so far to say as a Christian has no right to be miserable or unhappy. He says, if you are, listen, God, listen to this. He says, if you are, you have not shaken yourself and roused yourself spiritually and mentally and looked at your new husband and smiled in his face in spite of being who you are. And you have not seen him smiling upon you, though you are what you are. Now, he's, he's not discounting clinical depression and anxiety. He was, a, he was a doctor before he was a pastor. He's making a general point that a mopey Christian is just a little bit of a, a contradiction in terms. Bouts of, of, of those things, lifelong battles with those things. But as a, as a general rule, we have much to celebrate and to be grateful for. There should be a radiance to our countenance. If you're in Christ, you're out of the courtroom. But the second little application before I move on is then the power for change, what we learn here, the power for change is not more rules. It is vital connection to Jesus. The power for change is not rules. It is vital spiritual connection to Jesus. John 15, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. The key to sanctification is to disconnect from the law and connect to Jesus. Or as Steve Brown uh, who taught me preaching in seminary would say, as only Steve Brown can, the only people who get better are the people who know that if they don't get any better, God will love them anyway. Knowing that kind of love, understanding that kind of unconditional uh, acceptance by God because of the work of Jesus and we live under grace, knowing that is the, what dismantles the power of sin. So in order to be saved from the dominion of sin, you have to die to the law. You have to come out from under law, and you have to never go back. But how do you die to the law? And that's the second thing, and we'll be much quicker from here. How, how does that happen in your life? And so the second thing we see, the second point this morning is that, that God uses the law to save us. So how exactly does God use the law to save us? We're, we're saying we obey because we're under grace and not under law. That's one of the foundational principles of this part of the, of the text. But God actually uses the law to bring us into grace. He uses the law to destroy the law. Let's say it this way. We have to die by the law in order to die to the law. Anybody confused yet? We have to die by the law in order to die to it. And this is what happened to Paul. And here we get to this, I love this little section in verses 7 through uh, 12. He really kind of gives us insight into his personal experience. It's like, it's like a journal. It's like Paul's personal journal, which is really, really neat. So let's look at verse 9. Let's start there, and then we're going to go back up and kind of skip around. But he says in verse 9, I... He's talking about his own life, his own experience. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, when he says I was alive apart from the law, he means that he felt pretty good about himself. He thought he was doing quite well. He, he patted himself on the back. You can think of, uh, you can think of the, uh, sorry, the, the Pharisee in Luke 18, if you remember that scene where he's at the temple congratulating himself that he's so great and, and everyone else is, is nowhere close to, to where he is. He was proud and assured and self-confident. Now, that's an, that's an incredibly dangerous spiritual condition. 
So Paul says, that's how I was. But, then the, but when the commandment came, verse 9, do you see that? So then I was alive apart from law, but then the commandment came. And, and here Paul knew the commandments. I mean, he, he was a Pharisee. He understood all the, you know, he knew all of this stuff. He was an expert in the law. But he says the law, the law came. Uh, sin was there. Excuse me. I mean, the law. The law was there. He he knew he knew all of the ways that God had commanded His people. But it became something happened. It became real to him. It became it began to mean something new and different to him than before. There was this new understanding of the depth and the breadth of the law's demands. And so he says, verse nine: When the commandment came, sin came alive. Again, it doesn't mean sin wasn't there before. It doesn't mean he didn't have any sin. The problem was he didn't know it was there. See. He wasn't aware of it. He didn't think of himself as a big sinner. Uh, that was, and that was his problem. He looked at everybody else and he thought, man, they're really big sinners. They need to get their act together, but not me. I'm doing pretty good. Not perfect, but I'm doing pretty good. And he says, but then the commandment came. And when the commandment came, he saw what a big sinner he was. And then he goes on, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. He said, you know, in other words, the, the law was supposed to make Paul feel good about himself. It was supposed to make him feel superior to other people. But instead, it made him see what an awful person he was. It killed his pride and his self-righteousness. And in a sense, his whole life really turned upside down. He, he died. It's, I mean, it's this death experience he's describing here, right? He died. And, uh, and so the law, the law brought him to this place of death. So the implication for us being that the law has to kill you. Right? What is being in Christ? It's being buried, it's dying and coming, you know, and rising back on the other side into resurrection life. The law has to kill you. It has to take away your righteousness. It has to show you you cannot do it. That's how the law works. That's its purpose, to take away all your pride and your and your self-confidence and your self-righteousness, just drain all of that out of you and to make you feel weak and helpless and hopeless. I mean, it's the very place that we avoid, but it's it's a great place spiritually to be. And the law does this by revealing the depths of sin. Look at verse 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he goes on in the next verse, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now what, what he's saying is this, that on our own, we tend to minimize sin. Verse 8, apart from the law, sin is dead. We are naturally inclined to think ourselves better than we should. We think ourselves just a little flawed, probably, mostly okay. I mean, not perfect for sure, but I mean, you know, as Brandon said, better than most people. So I'm doing all right. And what Paul says is that's the way sin keeps us in bondage. That, that those thoughts, those thoughts are, are sin's chains keeping you in bondage. Paul said, I didn't think I had a problem with sin. I didn't, I didn't think I had a problem with coveting. And then, uh, and then the law came, and I realized I have a huge problem with coveting. Right? He, he chose coveting, I think, there, the 10th commandment, probably because it's not an external behavior. It's an internal dynamic of the heart, and that's the revelation, right? The revelation of the law that needs to come is that, you know, there's adultery in person, and there's adultery in the heart. They're both adultery. Paul thought of sin as external behaviors that he could, for the most part, control, and then the commandment came, and he realized that there were submerged, this is Richard Lovelace's way of, he said there are submerged continents of sin in his life that he wasn't even aware of. He was dealing with the tip of the iceberg that's only about 5% of the actual thing. 
submerged continents of sin, and he realized he was really in trouble, right? I mean, if, if do not murder means do not murder, I'm okay. I got that one. Most of you do too, right? I hope so. We got bigger problems than I knew, if not. But if do not murder means don't be selfishly angry, don't get impatient, don't be unkind, don't, uh, don't be indifferent about the pain of others, don't be insensitive to their feelings, don't speak harshly about other people ever. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have a chance. If I have to do all of that, I'll never be saved. And that's what Paul means when he says, I died. His whole approach to God had to change. And that's it, see? That's, that's how God uses the law. You have to die to the strategy of obeying the law for righteousness. And that is the very doorstep of faith. You have to die. You have to come to an end of yourself. You have to die because as Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, this is one of my favorite lines, he says, the moment a man is dead, there is the possibility of being resurrected. But a man who is alive and who is on his feet cannot be. The law has to kill you, has to kill all of your hopes for a righteousness of your own. Once your law-keeping self is dead and in the grave, then grace can come with resurrection power, overthrowing sin and reigning in his place and bringing a whole new powerful reason and desire for obedience. And that's why Paul answers the question, are we to sin, verse 15 of chapter 6, are we to sin because we're under law? But not under grace, Paul says, with the strongest possible disagreement, and I hear him say it in my Vecini voice every time, inconceivable. That assumes that the law encourages obedience and, the gra- and grace encourages sin. But it's just not true. It's the other way around. And by the way, let me just stop before I move on to a close. By the way, this is why there is no such thing as a self-righteous Christian. There's such thing as a self-righteous moralist who's a religious person. But that's very different. There's no such thing as a self-righteous Christian because to be a Christian, you have to have an experience like this. This death that Paul talks about is the death of his pride. Pride, self-righteousness, being judgmental of others. All of those things are sure signs you're under law. So if you're following the rules and it makes you feel good about yourself and it causes you to look down on others, you're doing it wrong. But what does this mean, lastly? Do we then just throw out the law once it's done its God-appointed work on us? That's the question Paul, that's Paul's question in the text. And the answer is, and he keeps using this really strong no, it's more than just no, it's stuff you can't say in church. He says, no, absolutely not. Can't happen that way, it's impossible. To be under grace, not under law, doesn't mean we have no interest in the law. It means that the source of motivation and action in our lives is not law, but grace. That we are compelled Uh, even more so than before, but not out of a sense of condemnation and fear, but by love and gratitude. But that doesn't mean you put the law aside. Uh, If you go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 31, if you have a Bible, it would be helpful. Paul says when he finishes that great, that great, you know, really the dense theological, you know, topic of justification by faith, he ends it by saying, do we then overthrow the law by this doctrine of grace? By no means, he says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. It's why Paul ends the way he does here in our little section of the scriptures with the reminder in verse 12 that the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is not the way of salvation. We don't have 
Anything to do with it as a means of gaining righteousness, we're under grace. But the goal of grace's reign is enabling us to, verse 4, bear fruit for God. To enable us to obey the law from the heart, from the right set of motivations and desires. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope of, of grace. That's what Paul means by the phrase in verse 6, having died to that which, we held, which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Isn't that a beautiful verse? This promise of new power, the, the Spirit, right? A new motivation, not under external coercion of guilt or fear, but inner compulsion of love and gratitude and worship. This A new source from an inner heart inclined towards obedience instead of inclined towards disobedience as it once was. We've been completely transformed. I read that and I'm reminded of... C.S. Lewis's words when he said, mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people. God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to pr produce better men of the old kind. Not just to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And then his analogy says, it's, like teach it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Do you know what the work of the gospel in you because of the work of the gospel for you is doing, it is to give you wings to soar. Isn't that great news? To so thoroughly change you from the inside out that though you've been stumbling over the gates as you've gone along life, you become a creature that has wings to soar. And so the implication is we, if you're here and your faith is in Jesus, I wanna to say to all of us, we can obey. Not perfectly, of course. Not in a way that can earn us a righteousness with God, but still enough to begin to experience the life and freedom that obedience leads to. The law, verse 12, is holy and righteous and good. The law teaches us what a life of holiness and happiness looks like. And to the extent that you obey the law, you will be holy and happy. And that is the very thing the reign of grace makes possible. There's an old hymn by William uh, Cooper love constraining to obedience that contrasts our obedience under law and obedience under grace. Here are his words. He says, Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. To see the love of Christ fulfilled it's to see the law by christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child in duty and choice that's the promise of this text and so let's pray that the lord would continue to do that great work in us will you as we prepare to come to the table this morning father do so work in us that you take our slavish ways of relating to you that that so hurt your heart what you desire for us, you've made it so that we could be sons. That's what we've read in, a, in um, Galatians chapter 4. Take our slavish ways and give us grace that we may cast, cast that deadly doing down at your feet, knowing that we stand in Jesus alone, gloriously complete, as, another, as the other hymn says. And where we still doubt, where we still feel condemnation and fear, we confess that as unbelief. We say we believe, Lord, help our unbelief, but we confess that as unbelief, and we pray that you would come 
Uh, we believe that you exercise the office of a prophet, priest, and king. And as king, you come to rule and to subdue us to yourself. Would you subdue us? Would you subdue our stubborn, rebellious hearts to the truth of your great love for us, to the power of your grace to set us free from all being under the law, that we might have joy and peace and happiness and purpose, that it might radiate from our countenance beautifully so that the city that we live in, that you've called us uh, to work and live and play and minister in, would see and say, what's true of them? I need it to be true of me too where we still doubt, where we're still afraid, where, where this is just not caught in our, on in our hearts. Come as we gather around this meal together now and so work uh, your grace into our lives. Change us until we obey from the new f- place of freedom in the spirit for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Those aren't trite words. That takes massive faith to sing that song. Massive faith to sing that song. And so where do you get the faith to sing like that, to know that no matter what meets you as we are sent from this place on the other side of those doors, that all will be well. It comes from knowing uh, that you do not go alone. You go with one who promises to go with you. You go with the words of, these, of this benediction, these words, these good words that he speaks over you of his love and his favor and his kindness to you if you're in Christ Jesus. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, receive the words of these benediction and go bearing fruit to his glory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>